So, today's uh, Garden of Amuna class is called Building Amuna. Amuna is faith, and we need to understand what this means. How do you build Amuna? I cannot begin to tell you how many times someone has come over to me and told me, Oh Rabbi, I wish, Halavai, or Chala, that I would have the Amuna that you have. And I kept on hearing that, so I wanted to look into it. <laughs> Where does one buy a Muna? Where does one acquire a Muna from? So I went to look through the books. I wanted to see what exactly is the holy books prescription for acquiring or strengthening a Muna. So I did a little research. I went looking. And I found two interesting teachings, more than once. I found two interesting pathways for Emunah. One is simply to accept that you do have Emunah. Because keep on telling yourself that I don't have Emunah gets in the way from the Emunah that you do have. So stop saying it to yourself. Stop saying I don't have Emunah. Oh, I wish I had Emunah. I just don't have Emunah. He has Emunah. She has Emunah. I don't have Emunah. Because that actually gets into your psyche and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy I don't have a munah God forbid so first of all just stop telling that to yourself know that Abraham Isaac and Jacob have inherited to us a munah and thus within the centerpiece of every Jew there is a munah if you remember once in a previous lecture I shared with you a story that comes from the Talmud, a whole story about Passover, where they, the rabbis, the sages, used as a verdict in halacha the famous statement that every Jew is maminim b'nei maminim. They are believers, the children of believers. So the worst thing you can do to yourself is to convince yourself that you're not what you are. Because as Jews, we are believers. And then we get ourselves in trouble by telling ourselves we're not believers. And sometimes we tell it to ourselves arrogantly and proudly. I'm an intellectual. I'm not a believer. Famous line, unfortunately. Faith, the opium of the masses. I don't belong to those masses. And sometimes we say it brokenheartedly. Because when things start shifting on us, we have this pain, I wish I had faith. There's an interesting saying that says that in the process between a believer and a non-believer, so there's the believer, I'm sorry, let's start with the non-believer. The atheist tells himself that, I am so sorry about that. The atheist tells him or herself that I have answers. And that's why I don't want to be a believer because believers don't, don't have answers because, ah, faith. The answer that the believer says is that while the atheist may have answers, the believer doesn't have questions. And that's just a different paradigm when you have that. You know, I want to share with you a story that happened a week ago. Someone in our community lost their parent and a very sad story young man 
and the young, the young man who passed away, his granddaughter walked over to me by the shiva house and says, Rabbi, I have a question. What do you do when you're mad at God? This is a little girl who's probably around nine. I was blown away by her question. But she wanted an answer. So what I shared with her was, what I do is I tell myself, my brain is this big. God is that big. So I can't always expect that my little brain should understand everything that the big God does. But I trust that the big God knows what he's doing. She smiled, said thank you, and he just gave her a tool. So what I'm sharing with you is faith exists. And one of the worst things we can do to ourselves is to convince ourselves that we don't have faith. So that's one, one teaching I saw of how to grow faith. By stop denying yourself the faith that you do have. And that's a tricky thing. We're going to talk about that soon. Because if you have it, how come you don't feel it? How can you deny it? I can't deny that I have five fingers on my hand. Because I see it. Faith is one of those tricky things you don't see. So you have the luxury to deny what really exists. We'll talk about that. But for right now, I want to tell you the second answer. The second answer I found is Limud HaTorah. Learn Torah. So even though Torah talks to your brain and faith comes from the heart, but believe it or not, studying Torah is what empowers, feeds, reveals, and strengthens, nurtures your emunah. So what I'm sharing with you is two teachings I saw on building faith. One is stop adamantly convincing yourself that you don't have faith. Don't do it arrogantly and don't do it brokenheartedly because either way they're not true. You have faith. We all have faith. Number two, study Torah. We're going to discuss why. The question arises that in the Garden of Amuna book, the chapter that talks about building faith does not begin with either of the two answers I've seen in holy books. He begins with a different direction. He introduces prayer. You don't have faith? Pray to God to give you faith. The question over here is, how does that match with the two things I told you I saw in the holy teachings? That's what I want to share with you tonight. Because the Garden of Amuna is giving you a key factor. I just think it needs to be explained and put in place. Because it's not a dichotomy to what I told you I saw in the holy teachings. But to understand this, we need to back up a moment. We need to identify what faith is. We need to identify what studying Torah is. We need to identify what role prayer plays in this. Okay? So let's start with the very top. What is faith? So I shared with you that faith is something that we inherited from our forefathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, our mothers, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. You just have it. A person, we find this many times, a person who lived in poverty, struggling, and all of a sudden 
their parent, she lived 120, passes away, and they get a windfall of an inheritance. Did they work for it? No. Did they choose to be born to this parent? No. But the fact remains that as the offspring of this parent, whatever the parent had is left to you. Assuming there is no other things that happened. Where, God forbid, rewrite a will and the sages aren't happy with that. Your will isn't a place to take last revenge on your children. But that's a different topic. So, by the mere fact that we are the inheritors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who acquired faith, they left it to us as an inheritance. We have faith. But the issue with what I'm telling you is that you have it, you don't have it. it, it is what it is. How do you nurture it? How do you build it? How do you strengthen it? I'll tell you another story. <laughs> One of my uh, favorite little uh, anecdotes that I say sometimes in the high holidays during the prayers. I believe I actually once shared it with you here in class. So there was this, uh, this person who had a part in the play. And the part in the play was that when the British attack he was to go out and scream, the war has begun. That was his entire piece in the play. And he was so proud of that piece in the play, he practiced it. And every time when they would practice it, of course, they're not going to shoot off a cannon in, in rehearsal. So they would have one of the stagehands go with that little chart. I know if you guys used to watch Batman, remember on the screen, all of a would say, bam. You know, like, so they would have one of those little charts, like, bam. And he would see it, and he would scream, the war has begun. New opening night. He was so ready for his part. He had his whole family, four generations up, four generations down, five generations sideways. Everyone came to see their family member in the opening of the play. No. He's standing there waiting and waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden, the cannon goes, boom. He goes, what was that? Amuna <laughs> <laughs> is a tricky thing. You see, because when you, when you practice Amuna in a protected environment, you don't know what's going to happen when it really hits. Oh, in yeshiva, I was a big believer. But then I got married and had bills. Now that's a different emunah. You know, it's the end of the month. Bills are coming. There's a mortgage to be paid. This is no more in yeshiva studying the holy books about emunah. This is the canon went off. A whole different emunah. So how do you work emunah? So what I want to share with you is an interesting concept. Orderly. Where is Amuna? In which part of your body? Just tell me, point. Which part of your body is Amuna in? You think it's in your heart. That's where everyone would answer. Surprise! I want to share with you. Amuna is in your heart, but I'm going to actually agree with Rivka right now. Rivka's pointing to her head. Because tell me something. Amuna, tangible, active, is what? Is a thought pattern. You're starting to get nervous. I'm worried. It isn't coming through. I didn't get the phone call. I'm waiting for the signed contract. I'm nervous. And now you want to introduce emuna. What are you going to do? Check your pulse. Listen to your heart. Or are you going to use your thought pattern? Are you going to start talking to yourself? One second. Me, the guy with the kippah and the beard, I was teaching a munah. Uh-oh, now I need a munah. I'm going to start talking to myself. Do I or don't I trust God? 
What's God's track record with me? Have he ever let me down? Am I, thank God, healthy? What is life? There's a thought pattern that works with Amunah. So interesting enough that while I will agree with Orly, because in the holy books it definitely says that faith is in the heart. But now we're having a different concept. Rivka over here introduces a very powerful thought. Amunah is in the brain. What I'm going to share with you is, like a good rabbi, <laughs> you're right and you're right. It's all going to depend on what we're talking about. The essence of faith or the revelation of faith. Because essence is really helpless to you. Only in extreme cases is emuna, the essence of emuna, really the do or die. Most often, beyond extreme cases, the emuna that will help you is the amuna in your mind, not the amuna in your heart. Because the essence of amuna is beautiful. But what I need right now is the tangible, practical revelation of amuna. The revelation of amuna is not in the heart, it's in the brain. And that's why people go over the last time you had a full-blown scare, anxiety attack, or serious problem. Remember, please, how you walked yourself through it. You walked yourself through it by having a conversation with yourself. Many of us actually do this. Shh. Who are we saying shh to? No one's in the room. You're alone in the car. Shh. Sha. Sha. Calm down. Brain, calm down. I need you to slow down and we need to deal with this rationally. So let's walk through this. You're driving on the 95. You have a full-blown anxiety attack. You're having chest pains. Your left arm is hurting. You checked yourself for the fifth time if you're sweating. But because you rubbed your hands so much, you're actually sweating at this point. What do we do? What are you going to do? You're actually going to use your brain, not your heart, to calm down. You're actually going to talk yourself through this. One second. I went for the full-blown medical. I had the, the K, what's it called? The... Uh, EKG, EKG, I even went for the stress test, I went for the nuclear stress test, the doctor told me everything's okay. You see what you're doing? You're using your brain to calm yourself down. Now the same thing will work with Ramuna. I'm doomed, I am doomed. I put all my eggs into this basket, I did all my homework, I can't believe this is happening. What are you gonna start doing? You're gonna start using your brain. One second, one second, Hashem, has never thrown me to the dogs. Why would he do it today? You start working it down with your brain. So what I'm sharing with you is that all of a sudden we're having a shift of location. Prayer is the heart. Study Torah is the brain. I just shared with you that practically speaking, if you're in desperate need of an muna, you're going to have to use your brain not your heart. So let me introduce to you another very interesting teaching. The word emunah. The Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya, he wants to know where the word emunah comes from. And he actually says that the word emunah comes from imun yad. You speak Hebrew? Imun yad. You know what imun yad means? 
Imun Yad is something that a scribe, a Moel, or a Shoichet, or an artist has to do. You can study all the books in the world about art until you don't spend X amount of hours with a pen or a brush or a pencil in your hand, you will not be an artist. Because Imun Yad really is all about developing a pattern in your hand. It's not about what your brain knows. It's about what the nervous system connects and the consciousness of the cells of your hands pick up to a point where you're doing it without thinking. In martial art, they'll teach you that. In martial art, they will teach you that until your body doesn't react without the conscious thoughts of your brain, you're not a martial artist. Because the last thing you want to do when four guys attack you in the alley is say, one, one, one second, stand there, move back, I remember this, hey, you're dead. Your body's got to kick in. And that's why in martial arts we refer to animals. It's instinct. How does instinct develop? Instinct develops by hours and hours and hours of practice, connecting neurons until it becomes second nature. There's a book out there, the third book, I believe, written by Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote uh, The Tipping Point. He wrote Blink. And then he has a new book out there. It's not so new no more called The Out. The outliers, right? Basically, in the second chapter, he talks about his research, tells him a magic number called 10,000 hours. People have to practice 10,000 hours to go from amateur to professional. So I'm not going to argue with him with the hours, but my point over here is that that's what Al Tareb is saying in Tanya. Imun Yad. There is no way to become a perfect Shochet or a perfect Moel or a perfect Sofer or a perfect artist, or a perfect tennis player, without putting in hours and hours and hours. You read books, but that then becomes naught until you get onto the field and swing. Just keep on swinging. That's what you need to do. Basketball players need to take shots. That's what they need to do. Artists can take the greatest, the greatest art classes until they don't take something in their hand, they won't be doing art. Musicians can study the philosophy of music. Get your fingers on an instrument if you're planning to play music. The same thing with emuna. Emuna is imun. In Yiddish, it's called ois arbetin, to work out, to work out a grip, to work out a pattern. So how does that work with emuna? How that works with Emunah is very simple. You're changing a thought pattern. To change a thought pattern, you can have all the answers in the world. Until you don't identify what Dr. Tversky calls in his book, Addictive Thinking for Addicts, he calls it stinking thinking. He introduces over there something called a dry drunk. A person who hasn't had a drink in years, but he's still a drunk. Because the crutch of an addict is his stinking thinking, not his drinking. The drinking is the acting out of. And of course, you can't go into recovery before you stop drinking. But after you stop drinking, you need to go into recovery. Why? I stopped drinking. Because it's stinking thinking. The problem of us who challenged with Emunah 
is that we have spiritual stinking thinking. And stinking thinking begins with the following phrase. God never, you know, I love those words. I taught my kids. Always, never. <laughs> those words I told them, you mean in your entire nine years of life, you never, nine years long? <laughs> and then they start, ta. yeah, you got my point. Don't use the word never and always. There's great books out there on cognitive therapy. You have a great Martin Seligman, Learned Optimism. He talks about what we're talking about now. He talks about three Ps. You familiar with the three Ps? No. <laughs> three Ps. Permanency, pervasiveness, and personal. So today, at exactly 7.30, something really rotten happened to you as you were driving on the 95. There'll be two people. One will immediately go into this, oh, nothing ever goes right for me. You call someone and they give you an attitude over the phone. It happened to be one of your good friends. Yeah, what do you want? Yeah, okay, no problem. All right, bye. What, what's wrong with me? So she doesn't really like me? But then again, how are you supposed to know that her kid was just grabbing the handle of a soup pot and about to get burnt? So is it about me or is it about them? Stinking thinking is the poison against the Muna. And now you understand that what a Muna really takes is not the heart. Don't worry about your heart. It's the brain we're worried about. Because thinking patterns is the challenge of Emuna. If when something happens to me, I had this with, one, with my kids, I went with them to Orlando, and on the way back I told them no to something. And that was after a whole day of everything. And they got kvetchy. And I said to them, I dare you. I dare you to put on a sour face right now. Have you forgotten what happened the whole day? Are you about to give me the never let me, you always say no? Is that what's happening here after a whole day? Let's stop. Let's re... You see what happened? They just wanted to do pervasiveness. They wanted to take a little no and make it everything in my life. This whole day, I never have friends. And then there's permanency. It's always me. And then there's personal. The person looked at me that way because there's something wrong with me. It's not because that guy's a yo-yo with, with an arrogant attitude. It must be me. That's stinking thinking. Now think about how we do that to Hashem. If we were to sit down here in this room, each and every one of us, and to make a list of from our birth certificate signature until present, of did God do us wrong? But yet that means nothing. Because I know for sure that now he is going to hurt me so bad. Why? When? Where? It's a very powerful Rashi in last week's Parsha if you were paying attention. After the Jews complained about the bitter water, the manna, the meat, there was a war with Amalek. Do you remember what Rashi says there? Rashi gives a metaphor 
of this person who was walking and the fox snuck up from behind him so he took his kid and put him in front of him. Another animal came from in front of him so he took the kid and put him on his shoulders. And then when he was walking, someone saw him on his dad's shoulder and says, where's Tati? He says, I don't know. I doubt he knows where I am. And then Rashi finishes that metaphor. So the father put down the kid and the dog attacked. And that's why last week's Torah portion ends with the war of Amalek. Amalek attacks us. My point over here just being is again and again, I want to just introduce you one thing. Amuna struggle is a problem of the brain, not of the heart. And now you'll understand why the holy teachings say that Amuna is handled through studying Torah. Change your paradigm. Now, this is being recorded. It will be on the internet, but I'm going to say this anyway. One of the biggest reasons why today's generation has stinking thinking with God is because our parents and our teachers used God and His Torah like a swinging bat. Horrible. Horrible. Every father who wants his kid to do something tells, and if you don't listen to me, Hashem's going to punish you. And you. We turned God into such an evil, vengeant God. Whole Judaism becomes one big negative force where every second that you could be stricken, you will be stricken. That is horrible. That is a crime. And now we're dealing with the aftermath of talking to a youth who really doesn't want to have a relationship with God. Why? Because he's not really a very nice God. Why would I want to be in an abusive relationship with an abusive God? I've had enough of that. I want to find a nice God, a friendly God. I want to have a nice religion, not one that's shoved down my throat. Not that every single night I have to worry if something's going to go wrong because today I spoke gossip and I did this and I did that and it was almost kosher and it wasn't kosher. Am I going to choke on it? Am I going to lose my house because of it? We're programmed to think like that. And that is abusive. And it's wrong. And now I'm asking you to start studying Torah. Because now you're going to find out that God is a pretty nice God. A pretty compassionate God. A loving God. I so often, often tell people, if only we would be as patient, as loving, and as accepting of ourselves as God is of us. We're trying to convince God to accept that we're not perfect. God has accepted that long ago. It's actually why He loves us. So studying Torah gives us an entire new thought pattern. And every time we see our old thought pattern sneak up on us, we need to stop it. No, that was old co. New code doesn't believe in that no more. Leave me alone. And that's why it's so important. And I tell this to people. There are holy teachings that speak of retribution. 
But right now, I don't think that's what anyone in this room or anyone I've met in the last 10 years needs to hear. I think what we need to now embrace is not retribution. I don't really think we have to again hear another lecture how if you eat not kosher, the worms are going to eat you up and the dogs are now, I cannot tell you how certain rabbis tell these stories and they're salivating from pleasure. It's not what we need right now. What's written in the holy books, even if it's distasteful to our human mind, is holy, proper, and perfect. But right now, what I'm sharing with you is, what we really need to be focusing on is understanding and rewiring our brains to understand the compassion of Hashem, to understand the patience of Hashem. What we need to understand is that if today, out of a hundred acts, we did 60 no-nos and 40 yeses, God is not sitting with the 60 no-nos as much as He's sitting with the 40 yes-yeses. God is looking to be proud of us, not to strike us down. And the more we study Torah, and the more we realize what the relationship between Hashem and us really is, and the more we realize that old co-schooling may have turned God into a monster, but it's not true. It's really not true. Then slowly but surely we learn to trust this Hashem who carries us in His bosom in the hardest times. Slowly we come to realize that while I keep on thinking that God is just trying to hurt me, God really is doing everything to make everything easier for me. Here's a painful story in the Chumash. The Jewish people tell Moses, because God hates us, He is doing this to us. What happened was that in Deuteronomy we're taught that God brought out all the armies to attack the Jews. And the Jews say, because God hates us, He's turning everyone against us. Rashi gives us a little insight. Rashi tells us that Hashem said, why am I going to bother my kids with war after war after war after war? Why don't I just bring out everyone in one shot, let them win one big war, and it's done. Wow, what a different way of thinking. But the Jews were still suffering from the remnants of the Egyptian slavery paradigm. So they couldn't believe that God would be doing something for no other reason than to make it easier for them. Because that big mean God would never do that for me. So what really happens with faith, it's really a challenge of the mind. Interesting enough, Interesting enough, the people that had healthy parents, when I say healthy parents, I mean in the brain, parents that were not abusive to their kids, parents that weren't threatening their children day in and day out, parents that weren't always, if you do this, I know I promise you this, but you did this, you lost it, you lost it for the next four weeks. But parents that followed the true Torah perspective, their children have a beautiful point of reference for a paradigm 
and they don't have problems with God. It's interesting enough that children that have been put through parenting of an abusive nature, teachers and principals of abusive nature, that becomes their point of reference and that's how they see God talking to them. And thus again and again and again I tell you tonight that the job of building a munah is by studying Torah. Studying Torah from a Hasidic perspective which is loving, embracing, kindness, showing us how Hashem is carrying us through every single step of our lives. And suddenly when we realize who God really is to us and how much God really loves us. So when I'm in a situation where I have two ways to think about it. Is God hurting me or is God helping me? I'll finally be empowered to put an end to the abusive thought pattern and embrace the true loving thought pattern. And all of a sudden, even when it looks 99.9% .9 that this is bad, I hold on to that 1.1%, 0.1% of saying, not my God. 1978, the Rebbe Blessed Memory suffered a huge heart attack. Later on, it was Simchas Torah. Later on that morning, he suffered another heart attack. And that second heart attack was really, really scary. After that, Baruch Hashem, things are rebuilding. Dr. Weiss from Chicago was the head of the cardiologist team. And he tells the Rebbe, um, Rebbe, I just want you to know that there's a 50% chance that this could happen again. The Rebbe didn't respond. And he said, Rebbe, did the Rebbe hear me? The Rebbe looked up and said, yeah, I heard you say there's a 50% chance this won't happen again. Is this optimism? No. I don't think it's optimism. I think it's a man who is sharp and keenly aware of his past 70 years with God. And he has no reason to think of 50% happening again when over and over and over he has a track record with God that is 50% it won't happen again. Emunah is in the brain. And thus, stop convincing your brain that you don't have Emunah. And thus, study Torah to learn God, God's ways, God's relationship with you. So now we need to understand where does prayer get into the picture. You see, the power of Torah is it works with the brain. The challenge of Torah is it works with the brain. Because the Torah descends from divinity into the human mind, and the human mind is a powerful player in studying Torah, we have a problem. Because it is absolutely possible to study Torah from slave mentality paradigm and fit Torah into slave mentality paradigm.
without a single doubt, I can be replaced by another rabbi coming up here and going to quote you verse after verse, Torah after Torah, Isaiah, we can just go through the prophecy where it clearly says that God says, and I'm going to damn you if you this and if you that, and you're going to eat your kids. And that. Whoa. There's a lot of verses like that. A lot of verses like that. And that's why the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, when he was a child of about nine years old, his father would always read the Torah. His father was the Torah reader in Liadi, in the original place of Lubavitch. And then what happened was, one time his father had to be away from home in order to deal with community, Jewish community work. So Parshat Kitavo, which is where the Torah gives you all the warnings, and if you will not listen, I will do this and this and this and this, and you still will not listen at seven times seven times, it just doesn't stop. It's really, the, the, the portion there is really difficult. He got so sick, this young boy got so sick that the doctors told him, we don't know if you'll be able to do any fasting on Yom Kippur. And they asked him, why did you get so sick? And he said, did you hear that Torah portion? I mean, that's the Torah portion which talks about mothers eating kids. How can anyone not get sick? They asked him, but Beryl, his name was Dober, but Beryl, you heard this parsha last year. He said, ah, last year my father read it. When my father reads it, you don't hear curses. And you look into Chassidus and you all of a sudden see redefinition of those words in the parsha. So it really all comes from paradigm. It all comes from your glasses that you're wearing. So here is an issue. Because in studying Torah, one of two things can happen. You can either become extremely humble from studying Torah, or you can become very arrogant from studying Torah. To quote our sages, it says that Torah can, God forbid, become some hamavet. It can become poison. Because a relationship with God is all about being opal, open, humble. And then Torah creates an arrogance. I'm the one who knows the Talmud. Let me tell you. What does that rabbi know? So Torah can swing either way when it engages with the human mind. Thus, without prayer, Torah study will not help your emunah. Because... Because if you're struggling with Emunah and you start studying Torah, you will have 108 reasons to reinforce why you deserve to be punished by God. So of course it's going to be bad. But if you do prayers before studying Torah and prayer comes from the heart, if you're asking and praying by God, God, let the Torah I study be a ladder, a gateway between you and my little mind. Let it be about my humility and openness to you rather than an egocentric boost to me. Then all of a sudden, Torah study engages rewiring the brain and all of a sudden we're back to emunah, imun, changing the patterns, working on a new neuron connection, working on a new paradigm of thinking.
Thus, what I'm sharing with you tonight is, number one, accept the fact. Not that you deserve it, not that you earned it, it was an inheritance. We are believers, the children of believers. Number two, study Torah. Don't tell me about the tape you heard where it said such a lecture that if you did this and if you did that and you th your soul is going to be in hell, your body is going to decompose and even the worms are going to spit on it. Leave me alone with that. Study Torah. Just study Torah. I want to share with you something interesting. In Chelm, there were two people that went to visit Minsk. And when they went to visit Minsk, they came back and Hochelem had a big town meeting in the Shtibel. What's going on in Minsk? One stood up and said, oh, Minsk, the yeshiva, ah, yeshiva. And then they have, the women have one group to help those who are sick. They have another group to take care of the kids when the mother gives birth. And then there's a this and there's a that, a bigger cholem. Don't ask, it's beautiful. Ah, okay. The second guy gets up. No, what's Minsk? Minsk. Minsk is one big red district neighborhood. And there are thieves. And there are liars. You got to hold on to your pockets. It's geferlach. Now they have a problem. In Chelem, lying is not tolerated. Someone's lying. They have no choice. They have to wake up the Chelem Eruv. And they have to ask the rabbi himself to come and see who's lying. They wake up the Chelem Eruv. He comes to the shtibel, he sits down, and again, the first guy tells him about the mince that he's beautiful. The second one tells him about how. And the rabbi is sitting there thinking and thinking and thinking, and everyone's looking. How's the rabbi going to find out who's lying? And the rabbi strokes his long white beard and says, Eden, no one's lying. Everyone's, oh, what do you mean no one's lying? He says, very simple. Everyone found what he was looking for. Now you understand why you need to pray before you study Torah? Because if you don't pray before you study Torah, you're going to find what you're looking for. So first we have to cleanse our heart. We need to understand that before you study Torah, you make a blessing because it's about God's Torah, not about me. All I pray is that my mind should open up to receive God's word and not to pervert God's word into my comfort zone. So when you daven like a mensch and then you sit down and you learn Torah and if you learn Torah after you daven you have no choice but to see the truth. God is kind. God is compassionate. God is forgiving. God is embracing. And God is rooting for you. Not against you. Then we're dealing with building emunah. So we spoke today about three steps. A, get over it. You're a believer. B, engage in Torah study. Rewire the brain. But for the rewiring to be done right, you need to pray before you study Torah. Asking Hashem, please, allow me to open up for Torah and not force Torah to just propel my comfort zone and my prerequisites, my pre-paradigms to Torah. Okay?